0: How many people here are hungry and ready for the word today? Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm excited. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open them up to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 33. Deuteronomy, chapter 33. Give you a little bit of background and context before we dig in. So... The book of Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. The first five books are referred to by the Jewish faith as the Torah. So there's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That makes up the Torah. Deuteronomy is the fifth and final book. At the end of Deuteronomy is when Moses' time with the people of Israel is coming to an end. He's led them out of Egypt from slavery and bondage. We know that he spent 40 years with them, leading them through the wilderness and the desert, God revealing many of his laws to them along the way. And then as that time comes to an end, there's a transition that takes place where the people of Israel are getting ready to head into the promised land that God has spoken to them through Abraham many years ago, And Moses is not going to enter into that promised land with the people. A new leader is getting ready to take over. That leader is Joshua. Hence, the next book after Deuteronomy is the book of Joshua, which tells the conquests and the stories of the people of Israel conquering their enemies to inherit and possess the promised land as God has spoken to them. So we're going to get into Deuteronomy chapter 33. 34 is the last chapter. So we're toward the end and Moses is getting ready to sign off. And what he's doing in this particular part of scripture is he is declaring a blessing over the tribes of Israel. And in that in custom and tradition when a patriarch or a father of a family would declare blessing he was he was speaking, he was he was prophesying in faith and declaring things over them that were coming from the Lord, that were promises, that were blessings, that would continue to be fulfilled. And so Moses is blessing the people, the tribes of Israel. There are 12 tribes that make up the nation of Israel. You may know this, you may not. But um, the, the name Israel, the title of the, the nation, actually comes from the person Jacob Jacob as he encountered the Lord the Lord changed his name from Jacob to Israel and that's how the nation the name Israel came to be and then Jacob had 12 sons those 12 sons became the fathers of the 12 tribes that make up the nation of Israel that we could even say to this day, it's still, the people still consist of those 12 tribes in that nation. And so we're going to dive into verses 18 and 19. We're going to look at something very interesting about the way Moses is blessing a couple of these tribes. He goes through and blesses all of them um, with the exception of Simeon, but that's another story. But he's blessing all of these tribes and there's something interesting that he does with two of them that we're going to look at today so open your bible and we're on verse 18 it says and of zebulon he said rejoice zebulon in your going out and issachar in your tents they shall call the peoples to the mountain there they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness for they shall partake of the abundance of the seas and of the treasures hidden in the sand. The abundance of the seas and the treasures in the sand. You'd be blessed, Zebulun, in your going out and Issachar, in your tents. Let me pray one more time. Father, in Jesus' name, God, I ask that you just anoint me today to speak your word, Lord. I may decrease, God, that you would increase in this place. Bring this message forth in a way, God, where it's you communicating. It's you speaking through me, God, and and nothing of myself. I need you, Lord. I can't do this without you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So um, let me tell you just a little bit about Zebulun and Issachar, the two tribes that Moses is blessing here in these verses, which were two of the sons of Jacob. Now, Jacob, he had kids by four different women, right? So this is like a Jerry Springer show all over. I'm just telling you, this, it's, it's a mess, okay? Listen to this. So Jacob in Genesis, he comes along and he sees this woman, Rachel, who he basically falls in love with at first sight. It's kind of the way that you see this happen in the Bible. And he wants to marry her. She catches his eye. So he goes to her father, a man named Laban, and he basically says, hey, Laban, you know, your daughter's hot, and uh, I want to marry her, and so what do I got to do? And so they work out an arrangement where Jacob is going to work for Laban in his fields and with his herds for seven years, and then he will receive Rachel as his wife. So that was a big price, right? And, but Jacob, I mean, he, he wants Rachel. He loves Rachel. He's willing to do anything. So he gladly goes into this agreement, and he works for Laban for seven years. And at the end of seven years, Jacob comes to Laban, and he says, okay, time's up. I've done my part. It's time for you to give me my wife. And it specifically says, just so you know, I want to go in and lie with her. He was ready. Okay, I mean, this dude been waiting seven years. All right, and he's ready. Just saying. All right. So, um, so Laban, he's kind of a deceptive little dude, and he says, uh, "Okay, so it's their wedding night, and because it was dark in the in the wedding chamber where the marriage bed was, uh, Jacob goes in, and Laban sneaks his other daughter in there, Leah, instead of Rachel." So Jacob does his thing, you know, and he doesn't know because it's dark. And he wakes up the next morning. Whoa, surprise. <laughs> Thought you married Rachel and you just, had, you just got Leah. And so Jacob is upset. He goes back to Laban. Like, what's the deal? And Laban's like, well, it's not customary for us to give the younger daughter away before the older daughter. So I've given you the older daughter. So then they make a new arrangement. Don't you love This is like an HBO series or something. I mean, it's like... You can't make this stuff up. Don't tell me the Bible's not interesting, all right? So then Laban said they make a new deal, and he's going to work another seven years, and then he's going to get Rachel. So he does that. Works another 17 years, finally gets Rachel, marries Rachel. 14 years. This is like a perfect romance novel right here, right? I mean, he loved Rachel. And uh, so he gets her. Well, Laban, for all of his trouble that Jacob had to go through, he also offers uh, Jacob the maidservants of Leah and the maidservant of Rachel. So those two women happen to be Zilpah and Bilhah. And look, I'm American. I have a hard time pronouncing these names. We were in Israel last year, and uh, I was talking to people, you know, and I'm trying to like get the thing down and all that. And Katie's like, oh God, just stop. You're not... It sounds, you're not doing it right. So anyway. So Zilpah and and Bilhah are the maidservants of Leah and Rachel. Jacob had children with all four of them. It's a mess. Now, six of the children all came from Leah, the first wife. And children number five, child number five, and child number six of Leah were Zebulon and Issachar the two that we're reading about today. And there's something very significant about the way that Moses blesses these two tribes because it's very clear when you read this and you see the pattern that he blesses all the other tribes in that Zebulon and Issachar are the only two tribes that he blesses together. He blesses them jointly as one. It even says they all the other tribes, there was an independent blessing that he spoke over them. So in order to understand that and the significance, we got to go a little bit deeper into this to learn what was unique about Zebulun and what was unique about Issachar. So one of the things we see is the area or the region of land that they were given in the promised land whenever they inherited it later in the book of Joshua, and Zebulon and Issachar both had regions sort of to the north in Israel. Zebulon's region was on the western side, which actually approached, and many say that it actually bordered the Mediterranean Sea. It's kind of hard to distinguish the boundary lines from the information that's given in the Bible, so there's some different theories on exactly where those lines were. But Zebulon was on the western side close to the seaport along the Mediterranean. And Issachar was to the east of him in the middle of the plains region, which is alongside of the Jordan River and the Jordan River Valley. I actually have a map, if we can put that up here, that you can see. It gives you kind of a picture of this. And up here to the top, that blue area is Zebulun. And again, like I said, many believe that it kind of went further west up against the Mediterranean Sea. And that little bay area that you see right there is actually where present day Haifa is, a, a very famous seaport. Um, and so there's Zebulun. And just to the east in the purple is where Issachar is. So when we look at this, what we start to understand from what the Bible says is that Zebulun were a people of the sea, they were a sea going people, a voyaging people. In Issachar, it says, were blessed in their tents. They were people who were settled, who were stable, who had kind of hunkered down in this one area and in this one environment. Seemingly, they are very opposite, very different in the two natures that they have, which is very important because this is, these are the two tribes that Moses blesses together. So think about this with me for a minute. Zebulun is a risk-taking people. They are a voyaging people. They are an adventurous people. They're going out to sea, traveling on ships, going out and, and trading. There's commerce, going into uncharted waters, new areas, taking risks every time they set sail. They are a people all about going into the unknown. Issachar, on the other hand, it says that they're blessed in their tents, which means that they're stable. They're settled in one area and in one region, and it said of Zebulun that they would reap the the abundance of the seas, but of Issachar, the abundance and the treasures of the sand. So they would... Farm, they would raise livestock, probably even had minerals and, and metals, depo- rich metal deposits in the earth that they were able to mine and that they were able to use those as th- that was their way of life, Of people who stayed in the place that they were. There's a lot of Jewish tradition that even says these two tribes, because they were probably close together, sons five and six, and, and probably had a close kinship, that, um, that these two tribes worked together in the way that they brought up the goods out of the earth and then sent it overseas for trade and for commerce, and then it came back. So they prospered together. We know that from the blessing that Moses puts over them. Here's why I say all of that. It's very clear when you see this and when you look through the scriptures that there is a a beauty, there is kind of like a sweet spot, if you will, that the scriptures are pointing us to, leading us to, that is like a balance for our lives between adventure and risk and stepping into the unknown for God, as well as stability and grounded and anchored in certain things about our lives that we are absolutely immovable about no matter what the circumstances or requirements of the journey that we are on. Is everybody with me so far? So we see these two characteristics in these two men and uh, seagoing and the tense that they are at. There is a perfect balance between risk and stability. So think about this for a second. In your life, there are going to be times, there are going to be moments where God is calling you to step out into the unknown. It's a part of all of our destiny that God would ask us to just walk in faith and to step out into places where it's literally like, God, if you don't catch me and hold me up, I am going to fall. Much like he did when he called Abraham out from the land of Ur and said, come into a land that you do not know, but I will show you. Anybody else ever been there where you realize God's calling you to something, but he's not filling in every detail for you ahead of time along the way. And you've got to take one step at a time like Abraham so that God begins to illuminate your path. A lot like Jonathan in the story where the Philistines had created a stronghold and were keeping the people of Israel from inheriting and possessing the land that was rightfully theirs and Jonathan gets up one day and he says kind of with like a holy aggression like man we, we can't stay stuck in this place any longer where the enemy is keeping us from advancing we are meant to advance we are meant to move forward we're meant to take territory So he says to his armor bearer, get up, let's go over to the camp of the Philistines and let's just see what God might do this day. He's willing to step out and take risks and adventure to see what God might do by stepping into the unknown where faith is required. That's a part of all of our journeys, folks. We all have to be able to get to that place where we can get there, but It's also difficult if we just run recklessly and just plunge into anything unknown and don't consider the wisdom of God, the favor of God, the blessing and the presence of God to be going with us wherever it is that we set our voyage to. So you have this second characteristic Like the tribe of Issachar, which is being grounded and anchored, rooted in certain things that you are absolutely immovable about. There are non-negotiables in your life to which no matter what comes along, you will not compromise, you will not relent, and you will not forfeit them and continue to walk in them along the way of your journey. It makes me think about Joshua whenever he was headed into the promised land after they had conquered all of the Canaanite people, and he said to all of the other tribes and all the other people, he said, look, we're going into the promised land. You guys choose for yourself this day who you're gonna follow, what you're gonna do. It's your own choice. You're all gonna make your own decision. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You see, we have to have these certain things In our life that we are absolutely grounded and stable in no matter what the conditions or what the circumstances might be and I've seen this many times been there myself so I'm I'm, I always throw myself in on these things too but you know you see people where God's leading some them to something big they're stepping out into a new area and there's faith and there's risk and there's excitement and adventure and, and all of these things. And, and they, they get out there and they start moving and everything is great at first. And then somewhere along the line, things start to get hard. Things start to change and maybe they start to question what's really going on or where they are. A lot of times, not always, but a lot of times, what ends up happening is they end up circling back around to this place where they re-embrace certain habits, certain disciplines, certain values that they once held dear, that somehow, somewhere along the way, they began to let go of and they began to lose sight of and they were no longer grounded and stable in those things. It's amazing how many times you will hear or even maybe been in a place where you say something like, Man, I just need to get back to reading my Bible again. Man, I was reading my Bible every day and I haven't read it in weeks or months. Or, man, I just need to start praying again every day. I was I was spending time with God, worshiping and and prayer every day, and man, I was really just feeling close to the Lord. And, you know, I got busy and I jumped out in this journey for God. I just I didn't have time for it anymore. And but man, I just I need to get back around to that place again. Or, you know, people get real busy, and they get into a new adventure, and then it's like, oh, I just, gosh, I just, I need to get back to church again. I really, when I was going to church, and I was a part of a church family, like, that's when I was growing, and that's when God was doing all these things that he started doing, and You know, somewhere along the line, I stopped doing those things. Are you getting my point? There's these areas of our life we've got to be anchored and grounded in that are so solid that our footing can't be moved. And those things, we are rigid like Issachar in his tents, anchored down, hunkered down in that land and in that region. Yet at the same time, we need to be fluid and flexible in areas in certain ways where we're willing to step out and follow God and pursue Him down any journey any unknown if he's leading us and calling us to go there and it's the leaders who are able to maintain the healthy balance between these two dichotomies that seem to flourish that seem to prosper and continue to advance and take territory down the unknown roads and unknown paths that God would lead them into I've spent a lot of time reading and studying like Successful entrepreneurs and kind of in some of my business background, just reading about a lot of CEOs and business owners over the years. And, you know, there's a lot of studies on what makes an entrepreneur successful, what makes a person successful. And one of the things that seem to always be characteristic is that most of them are very much innovators. They're risk takers. They're willing to jump out into the unknown and disrupt a space or a place because they feel that they see an opportunity that they wanna bring something beneficial to. And most people, even if they see it, don't step into it and go for it. And so that's where the successful entrepreneurs tend to thrive as they have that characteristic. Yet at the exact same time, when you sort of study and peer into their personal lives, you begin to find a set of disciplines, daily habits that they are about that are almost like boring and mundane when you get right down to it. Yet they are so rigid about these habits and about these certain things that they do that they refuse to allow anything no matter what is beckoning for their attention or time to disrupt them from staying the course and keeping those important habits, those important priorities in the place where they need to be because they recognize if they err away from those disciplines and those daily routines, they will begin to unravel little by little and slowly by surely as they go along. And I think that that's what Scripture is showing us. God's calling to us, men and women of God, saying, look, I have great things for you. I've got an amazing plan, this this adventure for your life. And you're going to have to step out. You're going to have to take risks. You're going to have to go into unknown places. But at the same time, there are things about your life about your routines, about your relationship with God and with other people that you have to be so settled in, so grounded that you are not able to be moved from those things as you pursue this journey that God has for you along the way. There's a couple other things that we see about the sons of Issachar and the sons of Zebulun. In 1 Chronicles chapter 12, David is building an army. He's inherited the kingship. He's building an army. And there's the, the people from the tribes are starting to come and join him. So in 1 Chronicles 12, verses 32 through 33, it says this, And the sons of Issachar had understanding about the times. They knew what Israel needed to do. There were chiefs among them that were two hundred and all their brethren were at their command. Of Zebulun, there were 50,000 who went out to battle. They were experts in war, all the weapons of war. They were stout-hearted men who could also keep ranks. So there's this balance there you see between these two yet again of wisdom, of contemplation, patience, really understanding the battle and the enemy and what it's about. Yet there's also this complement to that of these warfaring men who are aggressive warriors willing to plunge and run into battle to meet their enemy head on and annihilate him if God says so and leads the way. And so there's this sense that you continue to see over and over where you know we have to certainly have the wisdom of God and not just run recklessly into things and allow the things about our life that are, need to be immovable to continue to be cultivated yet remain fluid enough to, to, to go at any moment's notice and just be flexible and light on our feet so that if God says, hey, I'm calling you into something new, we're not holding on to too many things that we can't just travel lightly and move into this place that God is calling us to. There's one more example that I wanna give you And it's about King David again. And right after he is crowned king, the Philistines hear about this. And when they find out, it says that they begin to form an army and they they come down to meet David and they, they were coming down for battle. They were going to come and try to conquer him before he could start to gain influence as the new king. And it says that when David heard about this, When he heard that the Philistines had formed an army, that he went toward the stronghold, meaning he got up and he went forward to meet the enemy head on, face to face, where he was. And it says that he began to inquire of the Lord and said, would the Lord deliver this enemy into his hands? And the the Lord said, yes, I'm gonna conquer the enemy today through you. And so David continued straight ahead met the enemy face to face, and wiped him out and won the battle. Now, not very long after that, there was a similar situation, almost the exact same circumstances, that happens again. The enemies reform, the Philistines reform an army, and they they mount up again, and they're coming down again to try to defeat David. And instead of David doing the exact same thing that he had just done, where he ran straight into battle, he actually stops and yet again inquires of the Lord. You see that. Something he had already done, that he was already successful at, A lot of people, we would just run straight in, say, I did this before, I'm gonna do this again. But David says, no, I need the wisdom of God, I need the favor of God, because that was what produced the victory to begin with. Let's just take a moment, let's pause, let's say la, and let's seek the wisdom of God. Let's get stable and grounded on things we need to be stable and grounded about, which is knowing that the Lord is with us and how he's instructing us to fight. Let's inquire of him again. So he does, and the Lord says something totally different. He says, this time, I don't want you to go straight at him. I actually want you to circle around, make a big circle, and come around the backside of the enemy, and then as you wait, when you hear the sound of marching in the mulberry trees, that's a miracle, by the way. That's the hand of God, supernaturally. When you hear the sound of marching in the mulberry trees, then go out and take your enemy, for I will go before you, and I, will dis- and I will deal the victory, and that's exactly what he does, and so what I see in that, is I see two different strategies, I see linear, and I see circular, I see one way that worked one time, and another way that worked another time, but I also, so these are the fluid flexible, run into battle, willing to fight for the Lord. But in both cases, what didn't change is that David sought the Lord and sought the wisdom and favor of God before he went into the battle. And he was immovable about that. And folks, I feel that in our day, in this time that we're in, we need the leaders, men and women of God in the church To be in the hardest places and have the hardest assignments in the world and the things that pertain to our lives. But in order for us to successfully navigate those difficult circumstances and situations, we have to be a people who can maintain that balance between risk and stability willing to run into the face of the enemy and go into the unknown, yet immovable and and not able to be disrupted about specific things in our lives that we know we have to be about the business of doing if we're ever gonna see God's favor continue to follow us where we go. And, And you see, even in the church, how important, not even just in our individual lives, but even in the church You can begin to see how important these things are. And, you know, I take time to try to research and understand, like, what's going on in the church today, the body of Christ. What are other pastors saying, other leaders, people who are seeking God, understanding what are the times that we're in? And, you know, in the 80s and 90s, a lot of those times were marked by some really explosive growth in the Western church here in America we saw more mega churches, churches with like a couple thousand or more people, we saw more mega churches birthed and born during those decades than I think any other time in history in America. So this was a season of growth. But when you start to hear what a lot of the leaders in the church are saying today that is important and what's happening, it's, it's not so much this explosive growth, although we Value that because of what that means for people knowing Christ. But really, what seems to be the area of focus more than anything is health and balance. Health and balance. Because when you look at what a healthy church does, it raises up healthy people, men and women of faith. And a healthy church needs to be about a number of things that are essential and that are core to its function. For example, we have to be raising a generation of people who are worshipers, who know how to worship and pray and be in the presence of God. Not some dry dead religion, but an intimate relationship, a powerful encounter of walking as a friend walks with a friend with the one true living God. We need people, we need to be about prayer and worship and encounters and experiences with the Lord in that way in order to to raise that up in people. But we also have to be about discipleship. We have to help equip people with teaching the word, explaining the word, helping them read the Bible and understand the scriptures for themselves so that they can be discipled and grow in their faith and know what the promises of God are. But we also have to create community Cultures of community where relationships in the body are being forged, where iron is sharpening iron and people are living and walking together with one another, not just totally isolated in some place on their own. And we also need to be about the business of serving our community outside the walls, helping those who are less fortunate, the poor, the needy, and taking the good news of the gospel into places and regions that it has not yet been heard. Let me just say If you were to ask me which one of those things that you just named off, pastor, is the most important, I don't know that I can answer that for you because to me they are all equally important. And when we see a church or let's just say even an organization that becomes centrally focused on one element of of critical things to the negligence, the neglect of the others, What begins to happen is you begin to create an environment that's unhealthy and no longer ripe to produce growth and to raise people up to be balanced in the areas of their life that they need to be balanced in in order to fulfill God's call for their life. We have to be reading our Bibles. We have to be in relationship with one another. We have to have an intimate walk with the Lord. And we have to serve and use our gifts. That's all a part. Are you with me? Is anybody here today? It's all a part of what God is leading us into through these scriptures. It's pointing the way. It's leading us to this place of this balance between risk and adventure and stability and anchored in areas that we cannot be moved no matter what happens in our lives. Hallelujah, and praise God for that. And you know, I'll just close with this, is that really, it isn't something that we can navigate on our own. It's not something that our natural human wisdom can cut through the fog of and determine like David did, when it's linear and when it's circular, when it's risk and where it's stability, when it's adventure and whenever it's settling in and not being moved. The wisdom of God will reveal that for us. And that comes through a close, intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit. Nothing can replace that for us. We have to be able to hear the voice of God and be led by him for ourselves so that he may illuminate our path even if it be one step at a time. And there's some studies and some examples that have been done with women who have infants and uh, whenever they're, they're breastfeeding. And this is fascinating. But when the child gets sick that the woman's body, whenever they're nursing the child, has a way of like noticing or recognizing what is happening in the child and the breast milk begins to change and be modified in the things that are in it in order to address whatever the symptoms are in that child. Right? This is mir- miraculous stuff. So they've done studies where they had children who were sick or had viruses And they had women that strictly uh, pumped breast milk and gave their babies breast milk. And then they had a second study of women who actually nursed the child. And in the first case, because the breast milk is so full of nutrients and so healthy, those children ultimately ended up getting well and that virus ended up being fought off. But with the women that actually nursed the children, where the fate were flesh to flesh, intimate, close touching there was something about what the woman's body was able to pick up on because there was such closeness and such intimacy that that breast milk ended up curing and and producing health in those babies much faster than the women who strictly pumped and why do I say that one because we have a lot of women who breastfeed in here so you can relate to that two so that you know intimacy with the Holy Spirit closeness in our walk, in our relationship with Him, will produce the kind of clarity, the kind of understanding that we need to properly navigate and maintain this balance between tent and ship, between risk and stability. And Jesus said, as He was in John chapter 16, when He was speaking to His disciples, He said this, and then I'll close. He said, It's better for me that I leave, or better for you that I leave, because when I leave, then I can send the Holy Spirit, the helper that he will be able to be with you. And then he says this He says that the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth, or messenger of truth, he will be your guide and will guide you into all things. Praise God that the guide we need to navigate this trail in this journey is right here available and ready to lead us every step of the way. We just need to know him. We just need to be close that intimate relationship with him so that as we step out and take risks and plunge into the unknown of adventure and excitement and thrills for God and seeing Him do what only He can do in the places of the unknown, that we also refuse to be moved. We are anchored and grounded in these essential pillars, if you will, of our lives that are necessary to keep us healthy spiritually emotionally physically so that we can continue to move forward every step of the journey with strength with vigor vitality wisdom and be able to charter that course every step of the way until the end of our journey it must be so the balance between the two amen